This is an ABC podcast. I think it's quite striking. Especially when you can hear multiple males singing at once and the forest is just ringing with these songs. It's quite beautiful. I often think of it as different accents because they're, they're sort of seeing the same thing, but in it's, it's in a slightly different way. So it might be like how in Australia we sound a bit different to people across the ocean in New Zealand, um, even though we're speaking the same language. Jones, the ABC's friendliest nature nerd, here with an episode of Off Track that's going to take you somewhere that you've probably never been before, into the world of the other lyrebird, the Albert's lyrebird. Yeah, there is a whole other species other than the one that you've been seeing on the telly. And studying this species offers us whole new insights into animal culture. Let's join PhD candidate Fiona Backhouse from the University of Western Sydney as she takes us through just one part of the research that she's spent years gathering with this most mysterious brother to the superb lyrebird, the Albert's lyrebird. Albert's lyrebirds, when you think of a lyrebird, that's pretty much what you've got. They do look very similar to superb lyrebirds, but they're a bit of a different colour, so they're a bit more ready in colour and they have a slightly different tail. They also have a different distribution. So while superb lyrebirds occur across the whole east coast of New South Wales and Victoria and even in Tasmania, Albert's lyrebirds are only found in a tiny patch across the border from New South Wales and Queensland. So they have a very restricted area and they occur just north of where the superb lyrebirds do. They have a fairly similar habitat, I suppose, except Albert's lyrebirds are much more confined to rainforest than superbs are. Uh, They actually have a fairly different behaviour. So even though they have the same sort of lyrebird tropes with the mimicry and the dance, the way they perform that is quite unique. So once you get your ear in, you can really tell the difference between what a superb lyrebird is doing and what an Albert's lyrebird is doing. Okay, I do feel like I've got a joggy memory though. This one is what you might say was a fairly typical superb lyrebird whistle song. And this is an Albert's. You can hear how they're both lyrebirds, but they're so different. 
The repertoire of these birds is epic. It includes a mix of mimicry of other birds and sounds of their own design, that is, species-specific sounds that only the Albert's lyrebirds make. So when you started out working with Alberts, what were you hoping to understand? I was really hoping to understand more about the diversity of their behaviour and just understanding how they're using it. So, you know, we've got this great species that does all these incredible vocal things, but we don't know a lot about it. And their behaviour hasn't been documented all that much. So I was really hoping to get a nice snapshot of what's going on over the range of this species and try and explain some of the variation that we can find there. The first two years of my PhD, so in 2018 and 2019, I spent the winter walking through the rainforest throughout their range and getting as many recordings as I could. The time is 7.02 on Wednesday, the 11th of July. I'm at the main range in National Park. And I'm going after GBSL1. So here's um, the first bird to the north of the lookout when you follow along that small footpad. It's very cold. <laughs> Despite being in Queensland, it's very high up. So first thing in the morning, it can be just a couple of degrees above zero. So you're all very rugged up. Um, we go out into the field before the sun comes up so you can watch it start to get light and the birds start singing one by one. You have the wonderful smell of earth in the rainforest. Everything is often damp and that just tightens all of those smells of greenery and earth. And it's just amazing being in these areas with so much wildlife. There's, you know, I often startle paddy melons as I'm walking through the bush. Uh, the bowerbirds will go after me and yeah, it's quite amazing. So I think there is about 150 kilometres between my two furthest sites. A lot of my sites are maybe in the range of 50 kilometres or so apart, which probably doesn't seem like that much, but because of the terrain there, driving around between those sites can be quite slow. It is mountainous. There's a lot of steep gullies, very steep hillsides. There's a lot of cliffs throughout the area as well. So a lot of the range is actually on this ancient uh, volcanic crater. And so you can imagine as it's all eroded away, you get these massive cliffs. And there are actually lyrebirds occurring right down the cliffs. You can stand at the top and you can hear them below you and you wonder how on earth they get there. I mean, they can fly, but they don't fly that much. So... <laughs> It's amazing they can do that. But yeah, you can get some quite gentle terrain on top of these ranges, but there are very steep gullies all through the range that can be quite difficult to traverse sometimes.
and then I return back to the office and have a look at what I've got and go through those recordings to see what what they do. The first thing you'll hear is something called a whistle song. And that's quite a loud, very melodious song that's about sort of five to six seconds in length. And they'll start singing that from the trees. So you might be standing on the path somewhere and up above you, you'll hear this beautiful melody come out. And he'll sing that a few times before he jumps down to the ground and he'll start uh, ambling throughout his territory, still just doing this whistle song. Um, And he'll go towards what is called his display platforms. So each male has a display platform or multiple platforms within his territory where he will perform most of his morning recital. And once he gets there, he starts to incorporate a little bit of mimicry. So first you'll be listening to the whistle song. And then from the same place, you might start hearing a bowbird or a kookaburra or a crimson rosella. And he'll do just a little bit of that and then keep whistling and then a bit more mimicry. And then eventually he'll just start singing these long sequences of mimicry of all sorts of different sounds. He can go for several hours like that. It's quite incredible. Yeah, their fortitude is is amazing when it gets into that season, isn't it? Because it must take so much energy to be crying out so loudly and consistently for hours every morning. Absolutely. And all the time that he spends singing, that means that he's not spending time foraging and actually, you know, gaining energy for himself. So it's quite incredible. They can spend so much time with this incredible display. Who is the whistle song actually aimed at? That is the big question. (laughs) And we don't really know. I suspect that it's more male-driven, although it could be uh, targeted towards both males and females. So Albert's lyrebirds, of course, have their mimicry. That's what lyrebirds are known for. And the mimicry, we're pretty sure, is to attract a mate. But... As well as attracting a mate, lyrebirds have to defend their territories. And so this whistle song could be sort of, it's it's a very loud song. It's louder than the rest of his vocalisations. And so it could be him going, this is me, this is my territory, don't come close. On the other hand, it could be alerting females that are further away to say, hey, there's a lyrebird here, come and check me out. So... One of the things that sort of lends itself towards being more male-driven is that while 
an individual might have a few different versions of his whistle song. Compared to the repertoire size in his mimicry, it's quite small. And so it's unlikely to, you know, the, the, um, the number of different whistle songs that he has is less likely to play a role in attracting a mate. And so it might be more important in communicating with his neighbours. So if a neighbouring male has a similar whistle song, then he might know, oh, that's, that's my neighbour, I know who that is. Whereas an unusual whistle song will tell him, oh, hang on, I don't know this male, he might be coming into my territory and trying to kick me out. Yeah, that makes sense to me, listening to the whistle songs, which are so incredibly loud and piercing. They're, the frequencies that they use just cut through the forest. They really do, yeah. It's not intimate. It's, it's, it's yelling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no other bird sings it. That is the lyrebird making up his own noises. Uh, what is interesting about the Albert's lyrebird, though, is... They start their whistle songs with these introductory notes. And those are actually often mimicry of other species. So uh, one of the populations I studied, which is in Mount Jerusalem National Park, actually starts their whistle song with mimicry of a king parrot. And then he follows it with his own lyrebird-specific notes. Right. So this is a real king parrot. And here are the first three notes of the whistle song. Those three peeps are the king parrot before he goes into his whistle song. Yes, so so a couple of populations use king parrots. Another population that I've recorded in Main Range National Park starts with an eastern yellow robin, their beautiful piping call. This is an eastern yellow robin. And here is the mimic. Other populations sometimes start with goshawk mimicry, which is interesting because they're actually a predator of lyrebirds. This is a grey goshawk recorded by Phil Gregory and used by Creative Commons via Xenocanto. And here's the Albert's lyrebird version of the grey goshawk. Um, and another population starts with what I suspect might be a crimson rosella, but it's a little bit hard to tell. Piping rosella calls are my favourite, and they do have heaps of variation in their calls. And here's an Albert's lyrebird, probably doing a rosella. 
what comes after the introduction. So once they've done their introductory notes, they will start with their lyrebird-specific notes and often they start with sort of quiet, uh, low-pitched notes and gradually build up in pitch, get to some louder notes. Sometimes it's just an ascending, maybe five note. Sometimes they jump around a little bit and have a more interesting melody. So actually within populations, you can find variation. One male will have several different versions of the song in this part, but you can tell each population apart by that. So there are still very clear differences between the populations. Is that variation audible to the human ear? Or are we talking about a really minute thing that you have to put it through, you know, your fancy software to find? I'd say it's audible. I mean, when you spend time in the field and you listen to them, you get to understand what they're doing and you you can hear it. So it's like each song has a slightly different melody. Um, And as you get familiar with those melodies, because they do repeat certain whistle songs, then you can hear that, oh, this is a little bit different to the one they sung just before. So if you take the border ranges, for example, um, so one male in the border ranges can have a few different types of whistle song that he does. So one of them, he will start with his introductory notes. So there are maybe two of them. Then he'll start with the very quiet, low pitch note. And he'll sing four notes like that, but each one is a bit higher than the next one. And then he'll end with the final note. Another song that he does after the introductory notes, he actually might start with a high pitch note and he will then sing a few notes that descend in pitch from that. And then he'll finish with that one final note again. And another song that he has, those notes in the middle might jump around a bit more. So rather than them all ascending or them all descending, there's a bit more variation there. And there you have this final note. And that one is seems to be very conserved across the whole range. So every population, while it might be slightly different, they all have that same structure to the final note, which is quite a loud, upswept note and one of the highest in pitch in the song. The note Fiona's talking about is this slide whistle with that upward inflection. They all do it. Check it out. So, different mimicry, different tunes at different places. Like football anthems, different for every team and a marker of where you come from. You know, traditional football culture, learned and passed down. It's just that this is with Albert's lyrebirds. Culture in this context is a little bit like if you think about human languages. So we would consider language a cultural feature. So... It's learnt. We're not born knowing how to speak. We have to learn to speak the language from our parents or from other adults around us. And just like that, birds will learn their songs from other birds in the environment. So I know there's been 
research on other species where birds that are raised in isolation have a very rudimentary song that doesn't have all the features of the fully developed adult song. And so by song being a learnt trait, we consider it a cultural trait. And because it is a cultural trait and it can be learnt from many individuals, there's a lot of potential for it to change. So that can change from random mutations. It can change because there might be some particular driver towards a certain feature of the song. But it does mean there is, there is a lot of variation and it can change fairly quickly as well. So you do find within some of the populations, so there's one in particular, some recordings from near Kalani in southern Queensland. They sometimes do different introductory notes. So what might happen is that there's one population where sometimes they mimic one species and sometimes it's another species. They'll gradually have a preference to one of those species and that way it might be able to change over time. So this introductory note versus this. Very different. Which one will they choose in the long run? Will they survive long enough as a species for that selection to occur without interference? What does this mean for conservation? So um, when we think about conservation, we often think about sort of conserving genetic diversity or species diversity, but we haven't really thought that much about conserving cultural diversity. But that's actually quite a valuable thing in itself. So there is an argument that for a behaviour to arise, it must be important for the species. And so if there is this variation, we don't necessarily know what the function it is right now. But just because it doesn't seem to have a function doesn't mean that we shouldn't conserve it. It's also um, interesting or it's valuable for our own sake. So when we go out into the bush, we often love listening to the bird song and Sometimes it can be really interesting that one area sounds different to another area. And so by sort of understanding what diversity there is and learning how to conserve it, we can keep all these different animal cultures that we enjoy listening to when we go out into the bush. So does it make it extra complicated then when you have birds stuck in sometimes diminishing habitat with limited genetic pools balancing that genetic conservation with the cultural conservation. And that's why we're trying to learn a bit more about what's actually driving cultural diversity um, in different groups. So is it just that these groups are isolated or do things like population size have anything to do with it? Do other impacts like maybe the amount of noise, so environmental noise or anthropogenic noise, they might impact the amount of cultural diversity that you get as well. So it's very... Yeah, a very complicated issue that we need to do more research into. That's a male Albert's lyrebird recorded by Fiona Backhouse, a PhD candidate at the University of Western Sydney. And after hearing all about their songs, it's nice just to hear him move through his own repertoire at his own pace.
I'm Ann Jones, and Off Track will be back at the same time next time, ready to take you somewhere else. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.